Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Back Half podcast, the new Statesman's Culture podcast with me, Tom. And me, Kate. God knows what it will be like by the time you consume this podcast, but as we speak, we're huddled down in the podcast room, blazing open fire. We've set fire to all the books that our subscriptions manager was about to send out to new subscribers to just create some, some warmth in this room as the snow comes piling down onto the streets around St Paul's (laughs) and to warm ourselves through the next half an hour or so Kate what are we going to talk about? We're going to be talking about a fantastic new exhibition at Tate called All Too Human featuring the work of Bacon and Freud and many others. We're also going to be talking about Sade who of course is a band as well as a woman. Amazing two in one. Two in one. Woman and band. Woman and band. And we're going to have the umpteenth in our non-aversary season. Excellent. So, Tom, in the last few days you've been, um, I was going to say rediscovering, but in fact discovering for the first time, the music of the great Sade. So what has led you back to Sade? This is a bit like that Alan Partridge scene. In 1991, I did not listen to Sade. In 1992, I did not listen to Sade. Basically, for the first 36 odd years of my life, I've had no interest in Sade. (laughs) Last weekend... I've suddenly become obsessed with Sade. Where were you and what Um, were you doing? I was just pootering around in the house and someone on Six Music played The Sweetest Taboo, which is on one of her first two albums from the mid-80s. I didn't even know she had made so many records before this kind of... They, they. They, sorry, (laughs) yeah, they. The many um, inhabitants of Sade... um, (laughs) So my parents had a copy of Love Deluxe, which is the 1992 album with a very sort of striking graphic cover of a kind of naked or semi-naked. You can't, you can only read, you only sort of see her outline really, but it's a very kind of striking physical form of Sade on the front. I don't know if that's her best-selling record, but certainly that was the one that felt kind of culturally kind of preeminent at the time. And I put it in the same camp as um, Stars by Simply Red, mm. which came out, I think, the previous year. Just um, very smooth, very uh, like radio-friendly, very dinner-party-friendly mm. background music. And as such, just sort of completely passed me by. I didn't even summon up the energy to sort of dislike it. It just, it just sort of didn't exist for me. And then um, my ears pricked up when I heard this this earlier track at the, at the weekend. And 
I've been going back and listening to her stuff and I, it's completely amazing. And I don't know how I've been <laughs> missing out on it for so long. The peg for all of this, the reason why this Six Music DJ dug up this track was that um, she's about to release her, they are about to release their first new music. Um, although actually it confuses matters because I think possibly this new music might be her solo. <laughs> Um, but um, first new music in eight years um, on the soundtrack to a new film, A Wrinkle in Time, which is a big Disney movie, which is coming out very shortly, an adaptation of an American children's book, a great American children's book, actually, which isn't that well known over here. So she's not, uh, they are not very prolific from, I think, there the have been sort of eight, eight and 10 year gaps bet- mm. between records. So um Everyone's sort of very excited to find out what she produces. It adds to her mystery, though. She's a woman of long hiatuses. Yes. Um, and she, I always think of her in the same camp as Enya and Dido, these one-woman titles, these massive multi-million pound selling women that live, you can imagine, in castles, in turrets like the ladies of Shalott, and they don't do interviews, put a record out every 10 years. They may be raising... I think she went to live in Barbados or something like yes, that. Yes, she did. She and you can just imagine her, like, you know, just walking through the surf in a white night, <laughs> never having to work again, and maybe just singing to herself. Um, she is, in fact, uh, quite an interesting woman. Her, na- her name is Helen Folishade Adu, um, Nigerian father, English mother, uh, born in Nigeria. But when her parents divorced, her mother brought her over and she grew up in Colchester and she went to Clacton High School. And in her early life, she used to squat in Wood Green with the writer Robert Elms. So it's a strange kind of bringing down to earth of this this mysterious character, Sade. But yeah, she doesn't, I mean, I've never seen an interview with her. I'm afraid, I imagine she does them every now and again, but... I read an interview yesterday from 2000 was the was the kind of most recent like long form interview I could find with uh, what does she sound with like? Echo Eshin. Um she was she quite boring. She didn't say much of interest to be honest. <laughs> um that's why she doesn't do interviews. There's you know she doesn't it's hard to put um my finger on what's uh, what's so appealing about her music. Um I'd say she doesn't give a lot away in her music either. She's quite you know, she pulls her punches. She's quite um, restrained, really, which actually is is maybe why it feels even more appealing now in a kind of era of Lady Gaga's and Beyonce's and, you know... Breast beating. Yeah, it's quite that sort of restraint and minimalism, although that is happening in other forms of music. It's not a big part of kind of big mainstream pop music at the moment. It's actually a genre called Quiet Storm. Did you read about Quiet Storm? The f- had you come across this before no, today? Yeah. I'm it, fascinated. It's amazing, this. isn't it? Yeah. So this is this is a programming method. This is a DJ programming method in America of basically programming late night tunes, neo soul tunes with slick production, sort of slow beats, uh, velvety sounding music. I think it was a Smokey Robinson phrase first off, but later on it was applied to Luther Bandross and Anita Baker and Sade. And it was about DJs putting this stuff on late at night, which when I was growing up in Norfolk was called Radio Broadland's The Mellow Zone. And it was the <laughs> half hour that you got between half 11 and 12, which is probably when everyone was having sex or, something like that, or trying to go to sleep. And I used to listen to it. Um, and it always had Sade on and, and wonderful, right. wonderful Tonight by Eric Clapton and stuff. But it actually got her music to America because they put her in these slots. Mm. And this was a recognised thing. You put your wireless on to kind of wind down with Quiet Storm. Yeah, you look at what she's categorised with online and uh, 
um, you know, achieved success in the 1980s with songs that featured a sophisticated pop style, incorporating elements of soul, pop, smooth jazz, and quiet storm. But it's a great genre. I'm definitely going to start uh, citing it more often. Interestingly, Sweetest Taboo uses the phrase quiet storm in it, which wow. I, don't, I don't know if that's deliberate Well, when you just said about it pulling punches as well, that's significant because this was R&B that was kind of devoid of its angst and its mm. protest in a sense so it kind of made it more listener friendly um and very very commercial and i mean i like the fact that her album titles have such strong names they're called promise stronger than pride soldier of love yeah they're, so, yeah they're, they're kind of great like, yeah. it's like this weird warrior one yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this is a period before kind of r&b became inextricably linked with hip-hop i guess so it still has that kind of um, the sort of purity of that soul jazz R&B line before it kind of, I think um, I think that 92 record, she starts using drum machines. And actually, maybe that's why I like it so much is that it kind of, you can just about see some DNA shared with something like um, the first record by Massive Attack, Blue Lines, which came out the year before. Yeah, also she counts all these rappers among her fans. So Kanye West and Rakim and actually Deftones are into her as well. Really? Lots of strange people think she'll Rappers always like the smoothest of music, Because rappers they? are great. Rappers <laughs> don't have any prejudices yeah. about this kind of yeah. stuff. They're like, yeah, bring it all in because they like to sample from everything. Um, and also our very own Tracy Thorne is a big fan of Shard. a fan, yeah. I mean, the voices, it, it's a kind of a voice that I suppose I can, I can hear a lot of sort of Sade and Dido as well, which was mm. like a, a decade later or so, maybe a bit over that. But it is part of this this um, neo soul era where you had you had black brand new heavies and simply red, like you were saying, and Lisa Stansfield. And this was the music that uh, is sort of almost forgotten in critical circles because yes. it was so ubiquitous. It mm. sold so well, but it wasn't edgy indie music. So mm. this is what real people were listening to at dinner parties. And I think they've sold seventy-five million albums or something ridiculous. Yeah, I've heard between fifty between fifty and seventy-five. And one um, interesting thing is, very early on in her career, she opted for you know a bit like those uh, actors on the first Star Wars movie, um, or who was it? Was it Alec Guinness on the first Star Wars movie? But she took quite a low kind of advance, but an increased royalties cut. Ah. and made an absolute fortune so she she had 15% or something royalties which was which was well above what so that's was the a norm gamble at the time. isn't it yeah that's a gamble so but that's the smart confidence that paid smooth off operator. So i think um you know partly these hiatuses were because she simply could afford, afford it, I guess <laughs> i was reading about and thinking about smooth operator which um i'd never really thought about the what that's about but it reminds me a bit of it's very 80s it reminds me of the milk tray advert yeah. So this kind of figure of a you know international action man breaking hearts, yeah. <laughs> and then I was thinking because the words are so weird. It goes coast to coast, L.A. to Chicago, Western Mail, across the North and South to Key Largo, love for sale. <laughs> so like, is he a gigolo? Because I was reading about gigolos, and apparently they're really expensive. <laughs> but you can get a gigolo for a night who's got no obligation to sleep with you or do anything at all, and it's a grand. So you can go for a drink with a gigolo tonight in London. You have to pay a thousand pounds. So I'm thinking that maybe smooth operation. Is there not some sort of price comparison website you could There's, consult uh, to, you to knock get that down? Budget gigolos, <laughs> cold-hearted men. But again, I think that very '80s um, sophisticated setting of that track. Oh, perhaps I'm making undue claims for it here, but when I listen to it again, <laughs> I really like. And, and this is where I think the Quiet Storm stuff is quite interesting. Is it's actually I think sort of 
really clever and quite subtle instrumentation. You've got this like little distorted guitar riff going on in the background, um, like against the against the the drums and keyboards, and um, they're kind of um, the band seem to sort of be be doing their doing their work really effectively on those sorts yeah, of tracks. Yeah, it's just it's so nice just listening to bands where musicians can play their instruments. Yeah. I was always on that side of the fence. I like the brand new heavies a lot when I was a teenager. And everyone else was listening to grunge. I was like, I like the slick, smooth sound. <laughs> but yeah, it's not and, and Jamiroquai for that reason. It was quite a kind of polished era, you know, the early nineties, late eighties. Just briefly want to address the dinner party question. Mm. You mentioned that that this was a kind of dinner party sound and I, I think um, I think you're absolutely right, um, Sade and Simply Red. Um, and later on, I kind of thought even things like Portishead's first album mm. were just ubiquitous, kind of late night, late night listening. But I don't know now what would be what would be the equivalent. It might be something to do with the fact that the personal backstory is so much part of every new soul singer now. So that you don't, it's almost like the personality of Adele or Sam Smith, someone would sort of interfere with your dinner. Yeah. Whereas in those days, it was just, you know, the soldier of love just crooning. She she hadn't released that yet, but, you know, she was like this. It was just this kind of sense of of a kind of sealed, polished sound that was just on in the background. And now it's, it's so much more kind of emotionally out there and raw and... We we were trying to work out, weren't we, who the who the equivalent is now? I don't know if anyone has any suggestions as to yeah, who send them in because you're to. right. Those big names like Adele, they just come with so much baggage. Don't they? <laughs> oh, for God's sake! <laughs> I know with Ed Sheeran as well. It's too, it's too. There's too much going on, and it's too fast and annoying, and it's too poppy. It, we were thinking maybe Emily Sunday. Yeah, but I just don't yeah. think anyone would admit to playing Emily Sunday at a, a dinner party. I just think, I don't know. Ah, oh, that's what people do now. They have the bloody Spotify playlists that right, say, like, that say lazy brunch, chill, lazy brunch, <laughs> <laughs> and that's probably Sade. This is Spotify has killed the dinner party album. It has. Go away and commission a five thousand word feature on that subject, <laughs> um, and it will be published in next week's New Statesman, and you can, you can read it there. In the meantime, <laughs> you get it in by Monday morning. <laughs> it'll be published next. Week. Uh, in the meantime, I suggest you um, you go to your own record collection or to Spotify or, or whatever else, and. Um, Enjoy the remarkable back catalogue of Sade. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes! Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in in a few minutes. (laughs) Instacart for the win. 
we have successfully lured our art critic uh, and reviews editor, Michael Proger, down from the second floor to the minus first floor uh, to the podcast room to talk about Tate Britain's new exhibition, All Too Human, Bacon, Freud and a Century of Painting Life, uh, which we've, we've all been to see this week. It's just opened and it runs till 27th of August. Michael, bar the fact that the, the title contains Bacon and Freud, um, it, it's quite confusing. What's the organising principle of the show? Where does it, where does it start? It starts really with the idea that in the 40s in particular, 30s and 40s, uh, some people thought that painting was dead. Uh, and indeed, in the media post-war years, it did have a slight crisis in that there were new art forms that, are, that came along that seemed to gain traction uh, at, at the expense of traditional painting, such as um, abstract art, photography, the found object, and so on. Uh, and that painting had to do something to reinvent itself. Of course, it was a very short-lived crisis because you had abstract expressionism in America uh, in particular, which was all about painting, although it's in a, in a new way. But in Britain, um, it seemed to presage uh, an outpouring of, of painters, traditional painters, who worked uh, in what's demonstrably a realist way, i.e. they took real objects and, and made a portrayal of them that's not necessarily mimetic and imi imitative, but certainly dealt with, with real, uh, real objects. Um, so Bacon and Freud are the two most celebrated examples. Um, but the, the, the idea was that they worked with, with paint, and it's paint, that, the actual paint and thickness of paint that becomes a leitmotif of this whole post-war school. Um, and uh, the American painter, Honorary Honorary Britt, but an American painter called R.B. Kittai, um, christened the school, the school of London, and it had Bacon, Freud, Auerbach, Kossoff as the main, uh, and Michael Andrews as the main uh, figures within it. Um, but then various other people were associated with it. And what the Tate show does is show an expanded version of that School of London. It's a lovely section of London paintings as well, isn't there? I wasn't expecting that. So uh, Auerbach paintings of Mornington Crescent, that he would go out every night and sketch the same view from a, a little cafe doorway opposite the other side of the tube station, and then produce these beautiful, very, very thick oil paintings. And it reminded me a bit in, in parts of... Um, there was a great film made at the end of the 60s called The London Nobody Knows, it's, uh, like narrated by James Mason. And it was about the, the fact that whole swathes of London, of old London, were being knocked down by wrecking balls in that period, late 60s, early 70s. And it's funny to see some of these paintings in Auerbach, one of Dalston, I think, as well, and destroying, destroying houses in Dalston and just think that this stuff has been going, you know, we've been sort of um, bemoaning the loss of old London for much longer than we think we have. We, we associate that with right now, but... Well, of course, that... They were they were painting immediately after the war when London was totally pockmarked and pitted by uh, by bomb and war damage, and they loved it, didn't they? They, they loved it. I mean, there was a very nice there was a very nice uh, quote by uh, by Auerbach saying likening London to to a landscape full of crags uh, and lakes and ravines and so on and so forth, which is exactly how it must have appeared if you half closed your eyes and and smelt the brick dust. Uh, and that's what they painted. They didn't go to glamorous West End locations. They, of course, David Bomberg, their great hero, and uh, and indeed the, the the great hero of this exhibition, I think, in many ways, uh, did paint St Paul's. But the others, they they stayed out in the fringes a bit. Um, I mean, Spitalfields is dead glam now, but it wasn't then. Um, and Dawson, as you mentioned, and other sort of fringe venues uh, were the real mainstays of their of their art. Um, and so, in some ways, they did memorialise not just uh, unglamorous London, but the actual 
texture, the, the fabric of it at the time. And there's an extraordinary um, hourback painting uh, of a big hole in the ground at Victoria, in Victoria Street, building site Victoria Street, it's called, of 1961, that is simply a great scooped hole in the earth. Um, and it, it could be it could be painted in clay. It also it also looks as if it could be painted in crap. I mean, it, it's it's, uh, it's a very sort of sewer-like painting of, of of nothing really. There's no there's no form structure or detail in it. It's just squelch and mud and emptiness. But it's incredibly um, effective in the way that it transmits the idea of of the base material of London and what it was all made from. You both mentioned the the sort of thickness of paint, but it is just worth emphasising that some of these paintings, particularly these Auerbach ones, um, uh, there's one that particularly appealed to me, Rebuilding the Empire Cinema. You get up close to it and it's sort of, if I could lay it horizontally, it would be very much like the sort of battle diorama scenes that my dad used to make for me to play toy soldiers on. I mean, it really like... The, the the paint curls and peaks up in in mounds and crags and it kind of um, you know I didn't know whether this was a this was a step too far but thinking about when they were done it does seem almost like a sort of battle scarred landscape mm. in one way. they're sort of thick as electric cables aren't they they look like the inner workings of the building that's actually been exploded and that's the paint that he's using I mean I don't know for sure but with Kossoff and, and Auerbach who are the two really the the, the paint junkies who really <laughs> lay it on literally with a trowel at the times um, you wonder if they had to paint with the uh, with the actual support the canvas flat yes. um, because the weight of paint is so heavy that it would have slid slid off either that or they had to work at a very great uh, very slow time scale so that each layer had had a chance to dry thoroughly before applying the next otherwise like badly applied grouting it would just gently slide down the canvas because um, oil needs how long to dry quite, a, quite well a it depends time. on which it depends on which drying agents you, which drying oils you put with it, but I mean it, it, it stays to weeks mm. rather than, rather than uh, getting it over and done within an, in an hour. Modern acrylics are slightly different, but uh, it's a slow and painful process. And but of course the idea that you get the image that you get from these works is that they're instinctive and quick and are snapshots of a, of a sensation in a moment and, a, and an instant of a of certainly a, a, the built environment's being, uh, rather than something that's usually uh, carefully considered at over and uh, organically grown over a great length of time. Tell us a bit about this. There's a whole section of the exhibition which looks at um, what your hero Bomber described as the hand and eye disease, which was a movement, particularly William Coldstream and Uglo, who were were actually they were they were doing portraiture, but they were they were measuring things out in a very very scientific manner and leaving the measuring marks on the canvas. So there's a Uglo uh, painting here um, which took five years to complete. There's another one which took 60 sittings, each of which was an hour long. Um, what was that about and how did that sort of fit into this movement in general, that little period of uh, this very scientific way of empathising with the, with the object in the room? Well, this was a, it was a Slade school thing. Uh, Slade has obviously always been a very important uh, teaching uh, environment. Uh, and these painters, Coldstream, taught there. Uglo was a student. Uh, Lucian Freud was brought in by Coldstream to be a tutor, their visiting tutor at one point. Uh, and it was all about the, the intensity of the gaze. I'm sorry to get into terminology like that, but that's really <laughs> what it was about, that you had to look very long, very hard, very minutely. So in the way that modern photographers, if they're doing a series of images of, let's say, uh, the sun rising and setting over a, over a piece of landscape, they'll put their tripod in one place mark it uh, and then they can go back and put the tripod in exactly the same place every time they want to take the next image to get a composite 
uh, finished work. The painters were doing that. Um, people like Ewan Oogler were looking, were setting a model uh, in a very sort of nondescript room on a nondescript chair uh, and pinning him or her to the canvas, literally with these, these little grid marks. The difference is that instead of covering them up afterwards, I mean, this is no different in many ways to, to old Renaissance ways of painting, which you'd use, you'd use a framework with a, with a grid and then you could square it up on your drawing and you could square the drawing up onto the painting. Uh, they would then, of course, hide the marks, whereas Uglo uh, and Coldstream wanted to make the, the sheer effort and the timescale that went into making the works somehow apparent on the canvas. Hmm. The really interesting painter here is, is, is Lucian Freud, who went from this school of working to a much freer uh, handling of paint, though even when he was at his most painterly, i.e. slathering the stuff on, uh, he would still take, even for a tiny little portrait, he would still take 20, 30, 60 sittings. So in every single painting, um, even when it looks as if it's done been, been painted relatively quickly, it is the equivalent of, of three weeks of, sit of, the, of the sitter sitting absolutely stock still while this image was created. <laughs> Some so, of the most patient models in, in sort of 20th century art. <laughs> that's right. Well, I think that's why so many Many of uh, Freud's sitters, are show he showed them asleep because uh, <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't physically. Like you know, big so, Sue. Big Sue. I mean, yes. I mean, very voluptuous lady. And what's the name of that painting again? Um, a bit asleep with the lion carpet. Behind the lion. By the, the lion. By the lion, carpet, uh, by yeah. the lion uh, curtains. I think. Yes. I mean, she's she's Big Sue Tilly, who was his benefits uh, supervisor sleeping, which was the. <laughs> bought by um, uh, the Abramovich uh, for a record amount, I mean, 50, 60, 70 million, whatever it was. And he painted her several times. And you can feel not just the weight of her flesh dragging her into sleep, but just the sheer ennui of, uh, <laughs> of sitting for Freud. Or, or the wives that who, who then are uh, dispatched with quite, quite soon after <laughs> the painting's painting finished. finished. I love the details that, um, you know, the little details about the way these painters developed so that um, the, the look that we associate with, with Freud paintings now, this sort of, um, the sort of voluminous... Uh, flesh and the strange angles and the kind of looming bottom half and the, the head reclining on the on the sedan or whatever. It actually came from him starting to stand up rather than sit down to do his paintings, yeah. which seemed like such a strange small detail to me. That The idea of Freud sitting down is, I can't imagine that because he's such a kind of commanding presence. You imagine he was always standing up doing his, doing his oil painting. But, but he, he changed in a way that was really quite rare for, for painters. His style did a complete volt fast. Um, in the uh, in the sixties and, and and seventies, from this miniaturist style, in which in in which he was basically an heir to uh, Flemish uh, Renaissance painters, such as Memling, this miniaturist detail uh, and careful, careful, constant, concentrated vision, in which you can see him sitting at an e easel in order to recreate every single hair and pore to this uh, to this this completely different manner. And I think one of the things that you get from from simply that change of viewpoint is that he looks down on his subjects uh, and the backgrounds, which the, the curators of the show make a great play of, of their, they're just as important as the sitters, which may or may not be true. But what, what I think what you get from that standing viewpoint is that it shows how he got to these skewed floorboards that go at unstable angles and chairs are, appear wonky because you're standing up rather than sitting and looking at something uh, square on. Uh, and all those th that lack of stability that plays off against the the, the rock solid um, physical presence of the sitter is one of the things that make his picture so um, uh, queasy in many yeah. ways. Did Bacon go through a similar transition? No, Bacon Bacon didn't. He he was always far more ex expressive, uh, and indeed one of the one of the really I think the, the most exciting room in the show is is, is an early one of early Bacon's from the fifties, uh, with a couple of paintings. 
which is devoted to him. And for some reason, well, you can understand the reason, but it's still slightly random. One Giacometti sculpture that stands mm. there that you barely notice, and uh, it's the only sculpture in the show. And it's Anyway, the curators no doubt had good reasons of their own to do it. It's a bit odd. Um, but those, they just found it. It was existentialist angst. Existential, and, and, and the figure alone. And leaving your thumbprints on the, on the clay versus leaving your yeah. marks on the, on the canvas. I, I think if you, but if you're going to have sculptures, yeah. then have sculptures. Why yeah. not have an Anthony Gormley or something in there? <laughs> Why you know, not? Or, in, oh. or a Henry Moore. You know, who you could easily make a case for, for following the same mm. sort of route as some of these. Are, are some of the painters. Is this the painting that looks a bit like a, a figure slumped over barbed wire with kind of pistons shoved in its eyes? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's deep, deeply strange. I was thinking more indeed, uh, in fact, of, of those ones of animals. There's one of a, of a howling baboon and, <laughs> and a dog that seems to me, I, I mean, no, nobody can quite tell what's going on with these pictures, but it seems to me it's a dog that's chased its own tail mm. to the point of exhaustion and you're not quite sure whether it is aggressive or, ex or exhausted or simply reach some sort of stasis where nothing is going on whatsoever because um, it's all clapped out. But I think what Bacon was doing there, I mean, he never used paint in the same way as Freud went on to do it. It's never as, as thick. And indeed, he's, he's a very beautiful painter in, in that so many of his brushstrokes are very fine and refined. But you get this horrible, aggressive, violent, distressing subject matter in almost all his work, um, which, which shows that you don't need to, to layer the stuff on to, to get yeah. maximum, maximum effect from it. The baboon's teeth are not that dissimilar to the Laughing Pope's series, are they? There's sort of this, this horrible primal scream, as you say in your piece, the, the jaws wrenched open, you can't really see the face. I, I didn't know about his, I didn't know his animal paintings at all. So for, I mean, did you, Tom? I, I didn't. And um, there's a sort of um, something you pick up on throughout the show is, is a kind of um, a slight coldness that comes with uh, a lot of these painters' approach to their subjects in that they are, as you say, they're pinning them on the canvas. That even saying pinning implies a kind of slight kind of clinical, you know, detachment. Um, but no one seems close to me to uh, Bacon's kind of angst and, and despair that he captures in his in his portraits. I wonder where, because you, you've got two schools, you've got this Slade school and the um, Bomberg school at Borough Polytechnic. Is Bacon a bit of a sort of outlier in this or, or you know, what, how does he fit in in terms of in terms of the traditions? Well, he was Irish. Um, so for a, for a start, and he had this strange, he, he was very interested in animals. I mean, he's, he claimed he lost his virginity to his father's groom. Um, <laughs> Um, but he had an interest in, and always an interest in horse flesh, and he always there was a degree of self-loathing in there, um, and in his paintings that um, that the others I'm not sure did mm. did have, mm. and he had this convoluted sexuality. I mean, it was it was sadomasochistic homosexuality, and although I think he came to terms with it, he worked he came to terms with it through his paintings mm. in in some sense. So heavy drinking, brutal sex. Uh, Soho low life, uh, and you can you can sense you don't even need to know it because you can sense it in his paintings. Uh, David Hockney once said of, of Bacon's paintings, "Yeah, you can smell the balls," uh, <laughs> um, and and you know it's actually in, in the way that Hockney can do. He can brilliantly summarise a, a sensation of painting, and you can whether you want to or not. You know, there, there's a, there's a there's a whiff of the um, of the um, well, a tang of the unpleasant in there. Um, 
And so, so Bacon had brought other stuff to painting that some of the others weren't quite as mm. um, psychologically uh, as complicated as him. <laughs> and what about the way they they socialised? Because they did all go they out all and drink. They drank in the Colony Club, didn't they? Yeah, Muriel, Muriel Belcher's Colony Club, and they sort of the, well, the school of London, the hardcore school of London. They 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 hung around together. They drank together. They discussed painting together. They didn't actually paint together, they, but they painted each other a lot. Uh, so Michael Andrews got a painting of the Colony Club uh, with a lot of the painters in it. Uh, Freud painted Bacon, Bacon painted Freud, uh, Freud painted Auerbach, and so on and so forth. Auerbach painted Auerbach. Um, they 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 all used each other, uh, not just as 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 drinking buddies and and fellow carousers, but as uh, in an artistic sense as well. Who was the most dangerous on the night out? Do you? Reckon? It was Bacon. Definitely. Bacon. Bacon was. They, they'd start off in the in Soho, and you know, but Soho got tame because they then went down to the East End, and it got seriously hairy. <laughs> the Michael uh, Andrews paintings are such a contrast in the sense because of the sheer sociability of them. Aren't they? There's a, a, a room of his stuff, and they're just so heavily peopled compared to the lone figures in mm. Freud and, and Bacon. I like the fact that you've got somebody like him commentating on the same scene, but from a completely different viewpoint and probably a more normal viewpoint as well. well I think Possibly was, a more normal person. Uh, yeah, I think he was a more normal person. Though the curators there, a lot of Michael Andrew's work uh, that's not shown in the exhibition is actually quite empty. Um, or that the number of figures are pared down to ones or twos. Ah, and he also did landscape painting. So I think the curators have, have talked up the sociability side. Um, I think he was far more social, you know, I think he was a social being and interested in, in that. Uh, but a lot of his painting is, is still, is isolation as a theme in it. Mm. What do you think about it as a, I mean, as a curated show, did you have any doubts about the way it's put together? Obviously the, the paintings are wonderful, but you know, the way that they're actually ranged around and who's chosen. Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be a show like this rather invites you to say, why isn't so-and-so in it? Why is so-and-so in it? Um, I The story that's traditionally told of School of London and post-war British painting is um, uh, is, is white male and uh, and all born in the in the 30s and 40s. So what the curators have done, as I said, have expanded the school to, to include other painters, notably a, a group of female painters, um, if there was a School of London female painter, it's probably Gillian Ayres. She doesn't feature, but they've brought Paula Rago in, who's a Portuguese Londoner. Um, indeed, she was taught by Coldstream. Uh, but her work seems to me not in the same vein as, as the others. And then a group of younger painters from Cecily Porter, Jenny Savile, um, who are contemporary, um, are much younger, born in, the, uh, born in the late 60s, early 70s, who there's a certain spiritual fellow feeling, but again, I think that's that is pushing the idea of the School of London uh, into a gendered sphere that doesn't necessarily work. I think they're all crammed in one room as well, aren't and they? And they're in one room, and it's <laughs> the, the last, end. and it's the last room <laughs> next to the door. Yeah, it's a, it seems it seems rather a willful bit of curating that somebody they you know they sat down and uh, this is me imagining. I'm sure they didn't, but uh, they sat down and said, right, we need to get some women in here. How do we do this? And then we'll say, right, we've got a room spare. Let's shove a few in there. Um, and I'm not sure it does the, either the painters or the, the show a huge service. Before we get trapped in a gendered sphere, which <laughs> I would hate us to do, we should call it a day on that. But it is a fascinating exhibition, well worth seeing, all too human on at Tate Britain until the 27th of August. So for our non-anniversary this week, in March 2000, which is by my reckoning... <laughs> 18, it's 18 years ago. That's an easy one, yeah. 18 years ago, a film franchise took the world, which went on for 11 years 
five films directed by a combination of James Wong, David Ellis and Stephen Quayle. The Final Destination series, which uh, in my opinion was one of the best uh, horror movie series ever created because it was a very, very simple concept. And um, Tom had not seen these, but I sent Tom a clip today of uh, a gymnastics death. I thought these films were some kind of budget sci-fi operation. I had no idea what was going on. So I clicked on this link that Kate sent me and it's an American gymnasium with a series of kind of faults in the room that are exposed, faulty light fitting, uh, frayed cable. And basically you watch over about five minutes in absolute agony, a gymnast avoid all of these kind of potentially dangerous situations only for a, a rapid kind of domino effect to happen in the last 30 seconds and for her to suffer a brutal and horrific death. It was absolutely horrible. I can't get it out of my head now. I wish I'd never watched it. <laughs> there are no films so tense apart from possibly Halloween, but that's very different. The great thing about Final Destination was that there was no baddie. There were no aliens, there were no apart monsters. Apart from fate. Fate was the yeah. only, the invisible baddie. Um, and you basically watch a, a load of hapless, um, unknown young actors who are, you know, frat boys and girls in little teams of young people trying to get on with their lives, submitting to horrific accidents. And the whole tension of the films are just waiting to see what's going to happen next. And they have some very pedestrian but very inventive deaths. There is a famous death in a tanning booth with some girls listening to Roller Coaster by the Red Hot Chili Peppers who get snapped into the tanning booth and burned there. Oh, gosh. Um, there's a death during laser eye surgery. Oh. There's a death during a massage, which is one of my favourites. And then there's a very effective death on a roller coaster where um, it's much more realistic, where one little tiny nail pings out of one of the carts and sets off a kind of mousetrap of, of accidents. I think they're brilliant. <laughs> they kind of, they don't really get talked about. And then they came, they said they, they finished in 2011. And then by that point, they were 3D. So you get bits of brain flying mm. out at your glasses. Basically for, for fans of industrial accidents or, <laughs> or accidents in the workplace. That's, for experts that's, in occupational yeah, health. Yeah. <laughs> and then it ties up so perfectly because the very, the very first film begins with a boy getting on a plane having a vision that the plane's going to explode and demanding to be taken off. He escapes fate, and then the rest of the film is watching what happens to him. 11 years later, the fifth Final Destination film ends with that very plane, with two other people who think they're escaping for a new life, and just out the corner of your eye, you can see the first boy from 11 years earlier being dragged off the plane, saying, this thing's going to explode. And then, of course, it does. Um, and then there's like a montage of the best deaths with ACDC playing over the top. And then they just wrapped it up with dignity and said, we've done this, no more with dignity. Right. Happy non-anniversary final destination. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Back Half. I've been Tom. I've been Kate. Uh, thank you to Michael Proger for talking to us about Freud and Bacon. Thanks to Caroline Crampton for editing this podcast. Please do go on iTunes and rate us or get in touch with us via Twitter. And we are going to play you out with, not with Sade, sadly, not but with something Sade. almost as good. Maybe one day with Sade. And uh, in the meantime, by the, by the people who are heavily influenced by Sade. Almost, almost certainly. <laughs> Carbon copy of Sade. Um, pistol jazz. 
uh, with their song Godspeed. Mm-hmm. 